Thank you, Peggy. It's a total aside, but a matter of debate in our household at the present time is whether I'm better when I'm standing, preaching, or sitting. So feel free to give me some feedback afterwards. If it's split 50-50, I'm going to have real problems around that. But I'm going to try and just... I do, I do tend to wander a bit as well, so I'm told. We have been looking over the last few weeks at God's mission plan, God's master plan for creation, and as we will see from yesterday, from last week and this week, the whole work of redemption as well. So we've been looking at Genesis 1, and in particular, viewing the early chapters of Genesis as equivalent to dreamtime stories. These are sort of like our Judeo-Christian dreamtime stories that have a deeper meaning. We've got to go beyond the, the surface of a narrative to ask what are the lessons that are to be learnt there? What does it tell us about our world? What does it tell us about God, God's purposes, God's character? And what does it mean about for us to be who we are as members of humanity? I had an experience of that a little bit yesterday when I was doing some gardening um, and I did battle with a bougainvillea in the corner of our driveway. I think we came out 50-50 at the end of the day, but uh, a quick sort of perusal of my arms would show you that the bougainvillea didn't go down without a fight. The, uh, the thorns certainly did scratch. And it did remind me somewhat ironically as the passage we looked at the consequences of the, the disobedience of the rebellion, the setting aside of God that uh, Adam and Eve took part in and that we all, as in Adam and Eve, do the same, has consequences in which things which would otherwise be uh, completely satisfying activity have moved more into the direction of hard labour. And it can literally be uh, difficult and challenging and damaging in that process. The lesson that comes in this part of Genesis is an incredibly timely and relevant lesson. One of the, uh, the maxims that's used for people who uh, take on a ministry of preaching is that it's a, a healthy exercise to have our Bibles open on one hand and what used to be the newspapers on the other hand. These days it's more an iPad and the news feed as we go through. Because we need to be mindful of both of those and how one informs the other. As we've been going through this series and looking at God's master plan, looking at these early chapters of Genesis, one of the comments I had on Wednesday was that it's really quite striking how the, the deeper lessons, the deeper truths reflected in Genesis are so relevant to the world at the present time. Now, I'm sure it's true across all ages, but as we look at the reality that when people make choices, they have consequences. And the consequences aren't just for the individuals who have made that choice, but for millions of other people. And we see it in the case of uh, a figure, of Putin, who to all extents and purposes, has made a choice, made a decision. And how many others are impacted by that as a result, especially when it is an awful decision? These ancient texts contain truth. And if a truth is worthy of the name, 
It is a truth for all time, for all places. And that has really struck me anew as we look at these chapters in Genesis as well. One of the dangerous half-truths that we tend to um, message our children, our younger generation, is that you can do whatever you like. If you believe in something, if it's true to you, then pursue it and you can do it. Now, there's a whole lot of ramifications behind that. But the half-truth is that the freedom of our capacity to make choices and decisions is not freedom from its consequences. That is a very different thing. But the way in which uh, you know, some go about saying, well, it's my choice, my decision, but then resent what comes as a result is a misunderstanding of the two. I mentioned last week the question I used in a uh, high school scripture class many years ago when we had a whole whiteboard full of all the things that are wrong with the world and we realised about 90% of them were caused by humans. And I asked them the question, uh, what would you do if you were God? Very often the answers would come down in terms of, I'd make people do the right thing. So I would push that, oh, that's okay. What do you mean you were happy for God to make you a puppet? God to make you, a, you know, an automaton of some description, a pre-programmed, so you have no choice in the matter. Oh, no, 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 I meant those people over there. I make them do the right thing. You know, I will still have my freedom. <laughs> but of course, we know it's not like that. God has actually given us that freedom, that capacity to make choices. But we need to be responsible in the exercise of that freedom. And where we use it for other purposes, not as God intended, we will be held accountable. Now, if you want to have a nice little fun half an hour on the internet at some stage, you can do Google on search on children caught in the act, and, uh, or even animals. So I've started with an animal. I could have done a version of this for our colleague, Abby, she does a beautiful freeze when she's caught in the moment of chewing something she's not supposed to, just like this puppy. But I'm not going to guilt shame her quite so publicly as that. Um, but there's a lot of photo, you know, images that come up. And the ability of a puppy or a dog or some sort of pet to freeze and to, to try and work through, if I just freeze, maybe they won't see me in some description or whatever it may be. Of course, the reality, it isn't limited just to the uh, animal world. Uh, it's uh, not an unknown phenomenon that our children or grandchildren uh, can also get caught in that moment and the similar moment of, okay, how am I going to explain this one? I love the look of the dog uh, towards the child. It's sort of, uh, okay, that texture work that you did did not go well on my fur uh, <laughs> as you were sitting there as well. And that's the moment that Adam and Eve have been caught in. And, and to be honest, of course, that's the moment that we are all caught in before God. One of the capacities that children do develop at a remarkably early age is to find reasons to explain why it wasn't them. It wasn't me, you know. Uh, and it's a struggle at times if you're a parent or a grandparent or a godparent or a stepparent or anyone looking on to keep a straight face when they come up with reasons to explain why this, what appears to be a wrongdoing, you know, the dog ate my homework or the, 
some, something came in through the window and did all this, and of course it wasn't me. Or it's really useful if you have a brother or sister around because then you can say, oh, it was them. That instinct is, seems to be pretty deeply instilled in pretty much all, hum, all humans. I wonder whether the reality is that as adults we are better at hiding that shame, that blame-shifting tactic. The reality is that for a lot of our conversations and a lot of the situations we find ourselves, we do what Adam and Eve did, or at least what Adam did in particular. Now, I'll give you a warning, there's a dad joke coming up. Stuart Langshaw could get away with them. I know that I'm not quite in the same space. Stuart's got a remarkable ability to get away with them. We know the story of Adam and Eve and what happened once God comes into their presence and Adam is aware of his nakedness, that is to say he's not, he cannot hide from God. And the joke goes, Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. And the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> I did warn you. Okay, okay. But that instinct of... Finding someone else to blame that is so characteristic in this narrative is no less characteristic in our own society. I don't know about you, but I really respect civil leaders and certainly politicians who can own a mistake. Who can actually say, look, I got that wrong. I, you know, there's a learning to be done here and we'll, we will do better and we'll learn from it. I actually respect it. It takes strength of character to do that. I really have little time for those who very quickly get to the butt. But it wasn't really me. You know, it was those bureaucrats. It was that. It was this and everything else. We need to own those consequences, those choices. Many years ago, uh, when I was starting out as from my curacy, uh, St Michael's Wollongong and I went to my first parish at Helensburg and Stanwell Park south of the Royal National Park beautiful space Have you ever seen the hang gliders going off Bald Hill that was my drive to church on a Sunday morning I could have had a chaplaincy work offering prayer before people took off for their flights anyway I remember my regional bishop Harry Goodhue went on to be the Archbishop of Sydney a great example and mentor for me in ministering as I started my first uh, position there, and Harry said to me, you will make mistakes. We all do. He said, the one thing I don't want you to do is to be so fearful of making mistakes, you end up doing nothing. He said, I'm giving you permission to make mistakes. <coughs> all I ask from you is that you own it when you make a mistake and that you learn from it. Isn't that good advice? And I've used that time and again now for, for others in a different ministry context and certainly those in uh, embarking on ministry. Giving permission for us to make mistakes is actually quite liberating as a church. You know, when we plan and look at some things that we might do, are they all going to work? No, you know, if, if two out of ten of the things we try don't work, sorry, two out of the ten do work, then we're two ahead. But that comes with that capacity that God has given us to make choices, to make plans, to begin to think through which direction or pathway we may go in. 
But when we resort to his fault, her fault, their fault, it wasn't me, whether it's within friendships and relationships in the playground, in the household, in neighbourhoods, or at a larger scale, it actually just builds a sense of resentment and a lack of ownership of our place and voice within it. That is, I believe, one of the great lessons that we need to learn from this passage in Genesis. The result of the disobedience was that life became much harder. The relationship between the man and his woman that he was soon to call Eve was then marked not by ease of being of each other but by competition, by rivalry. The verse that talks about how your desire will be for your husband probably has a sense of your desire will be to master your husband. That's how that's used elsewhere in Genesis. But you will rule over her. It prefigures that what had been a harmonious partnership between equals now becomes a, a competition and a push and a pushback sort of relationship. But not just relationally, but even the world in which we exist in is no longer characterised by that shalom that I described in the Garden of Eden. Remember, shalom is that, that place of refuge, that place of nurture, the place where it is well watered and the fruitfulness emerges. And it's a place of harmony, the absence of conflict and distrust. The result of the disobedience for Adam and Eve and for you and I is that we are no longer in the presence of God. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. And in that banishment, life becomes harder because outside that protective space, life is hard, it is messy. And that whole work of uh, creation continuing to, to extend and to reach out and to become filling the totality of the world is the world in which we find ourselves. We now see little outposts of that creation, of that garden, but in and around that there are weeds, there are thorns on our bougainvillea, there are things that um, can become really hard. And of course it goes without saying, though I cannot speak from personal experience, but I'm I'm led to believe that childbirth is not an absolute breeze. Um, and so it's anticipated. This is the characteristic of what life outside that garden is. Now the narrative doesn't stop there. And the movement back towards the sanctuary space is the story of Israel. When they're taken and led to the promised land, that is to re-enter an experience of the garden. Still work to be done but it'll be where the, the flourishing of that world begins to, to, uh, to prevail. When we come to the New Testament, this is the, the, what is then described as the kingdom of God. When Jesus says, come to me all of those who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. Not just a quick breather, it's actually a touch of that shalom the kingdom, and that is what our calling as a church is to be a place of shalom, a little outpost where we can bring some shalom into other people's lives and people come within us and find that nurture and that, that place where there is 
uh, a sanctuary, a refuge, a place to be nourished, to be encouraged, to deal with some of the issues and begin to make better choices with the encouragement of those of us around. I'm hoping that we might adopt that as our vision for St Matthew's, that we would have a vision to be, in God's grace, a sanctuary church, a safe place, a place to be nourished, to be cared for, to be known by name, and where we can begin to, to grow into that with each other's encouragement and the work of the Spirit in our midst as well. So what otherwise might be rather a dire passage in terms of the judgment and the, the reality of our mortality that comes as a result, that mortality enters into the world and we do age and have all that comes with that process. There is a seed of hope that is just named in that passage. God speaks to the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And her seed, he will bruise your head and you will, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his head. With the hindsight of looking at the, from the, the stance of the New Testament, we can see there a promise that was to be fulfilled in the seed, that is to say, Jesus. Jesus was one in which the serpent, the evil one, the whole forces of evil, did their best to afflict and to destroy and to eradicate. Yet Jesus prevailed in and through that. Of course, that's where we are heading in our Lenten journey towards Easter. But we could also say that in Jesus, that impact of evil and justice will be dealt with. I find it hard at times to look at a Putin and look at people who are making choices that are just wrong. And they are evil. And I ask, where is God in the midst of that? And we need to trust that there will be a calling to account. There will be a judgment. And there will be acts of mercy and grace and people reaching out in that messy situation. But what does this look like in our own context as well? We see it, for instance, in the, uh, the response to the floods in northern New South Wales, around Lismore and elsewhere in, in uh, southeastern Queensland. What we see in those moments are people looking out for the other, not making choices out of self-interest. Some may do that. But so many had a sense of, I just wanted to go and check on my neighbour. I got in my tinny and went out and checked them and realised that we needed to organise some help. We saw communities and neighbours uh, coming together. That is what we are called to be. It's a pity it only tends to happen in times of crisis. But what if that spirit becomes the DNA of our church, the kingdom DNA of our sanctuary church? Just simple acts of kindness as we go out into the week. A touch of shalom in people's lives does make a difference. That is our calling and that is what God says he is willing and wants to do in and through us. But we have choices to make. Let us make the right choices. The seed of Eve, a person of Jesus, made a choice 
and we're going to pick it up in a moment in our statement of faith. He chose not to exploit being equal with God. He chose to set aside that and to use his position as the Son of God to enter into this world and do the amazing work of salvation that he did. It is his mindset, his humble-mindedness that should shape our attitude and the choices that we make. Amen.